0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans, the book of Romans, the eighth chapter. As many of you may know, this particular book penned by the Apostle Paul is at least in one sense a rich, systematic exposition of what Paul refers to in Romans 1.1 1, 1 and in Romans 15.16 as the gospel of God. Romans is about the gospel of God, the good news from God. And this good news from God is the hope-filled message that the very thing that God demands from sinners, which is perfection or absolute righteousness, that very thing that God demands from sinners, God himself has provided for sinners. Through the life, death, and resurrection of his perfect absolutely righteous Son, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the answer to the life and death question, how does God save sinners? For 16 chapters, Paul unpacks in detail various aspects of the gospel, including its substance, its foundation, uh, its benefits, and its implications. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, the whole world is shown condemned and lost in sin. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, condemned sinners are presented as justified and declared righteous if they believe on Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 6 and 7, Paul carefully explains God's method of sanctification, that process by which we as believers are being made holy in our practice and being conformed into the image of Christ in our daily lives. So Paul deals thoroughly with justification. He deals thoroughly with the issue of sanctification. But at this point in the book, a question surfaces that Paul deals with head on. And the question is this. Will this divine method of justification... And will this divine method of sanctification last? Or we say, will it endure? And we come to Romans chapter 8, which some have referred to as the brightest jewel in the setting of the Bible. Romans 8 is a no condemnation chapter. It begins with this blessing in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus it concludes in verse 39 with this statement that nothing or no one will uh, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 is also a chapter about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God living within the believer and ministering to the believer in some pretty marvelous ways. Interestingly, the Spirit who is only mentioned one other time in the first seven chapters of Romans, is referred to in chapter 8 nearly 20 times. And you'll notice all the various ministries of the Spirit that Paul highlights in this wonderful chapter. In verses 2 through verse 8, Paul describes how the Holy Spirit frees us from sin and death and enables us to fulfill the law. The Spirit also has a life-giving ministry, verse 11. He says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In verse 13, Paul mentions the sanctifying power of the Spirit. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Holy Spirit also empowers the believer to overcome sin in his or her daily life. The Holy Spirit leads and guides the Christian, Paul says in verse 14. He also performs a testifying work in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, the Spirit draws us into intimacy with the Father. And that is a supernatural work. When you feel distant from God, the Spirit is pulling you back, making you want an intimate relationship with God, the shepherd of your soul. The Spirit also has a comforting ministry. He mentions this in verse 18. simply says that when we suffer, that the Spirit is the one who helps us to understand that though we suffer in this life, there is a greater glory to come in the future. And these two themes of present suffering and future glorification, which initially show up together in verse 17, actually run through and unite this particular section, which runs all the way down through verse number 30. Now, as we approach verse 26, we begin to consider what, the, what Bible students have referred to as the doctrine of perseverance, the doctrine of perseverance, Now, this is not the first time that the Apostle Paul has brought up this issue of perseverance in the book of Romans. In fact, if you'll turn back just a few pages to Romans chapter 2. In Romans 2, verse number 6, Paul says, He, or speaking of God, God will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience... And the word there for patience is a word which means perseverance or uh, uh, steadfast endurance... So to those who by patience or by perseverance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, clearly there is no way that any of us can come before God on our own. We are born under his wrath. We are born under his anger and his judgment because we are sinners by nature and we are lawbreakers by choice. And we really have nothing to offer to God, Romans tells us, that is acceptable to Him. In fact, it says that our good works are even detestable. That our our good, righteous deeds, religious deeds are even offensive to Him. But in Christ, Paul says, we are made acceptable. By grace and through faith in His satisfying work on the cross. And now that we have been justified... And set apart unto God in our position, we have entered into that process of spiritual growth, that process of progressive sanctification, of being conformed into the image of Jesus. And in the end, when we face the Lord, Paul says, what we will notice is that we have been completely transformed into Christ's likeness. And therefore, as we have persevered, in our desire to be like Christ in this life, we end up with that final outcome, eternal life. If you'll turn maybe a page or two over in your Bibles to Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that that suffering produces endurance. It's the same word there, that patience word, endurance. And endurance, verse 4, he says, produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Who's been given to us. So Paul says this. We have peace with God. And because of that. We rejoice in our sufferings. We exult in our tribulations. We boast in our trials. Because in them. The power of God is on display. And as the power of God. Carries us through our difficulties. And our struggles. There is a greater. And greater strength. To persevere. So, as believers, we are called to persevere. We are called to stay steady. We are called to be consistent and to press forward in the Christian life. But this is the rub. The rub is this that whenever we are called to persevere, we immediately face attention. On the one hand, We know that this is the proactive work that God calls his people to. That God calls us to be proactive in the pursuit of of, of endurance, to persevere in the faith. We know that on one hand, but yet on the other hand, we equally know that in this life and until we get to glory, we are vulnerable. And the pressure that we feel regarding this issue doesn't come... Because we doubt the importance of persevering. Because we know that persevering is important. And that it is the means by which God gets us to glory. And this tension also doesn't come because we doubt the promises of God. Because we know that all of God's promises are true, always. The tension comes because of the fact that we are called as believers, to stay steady and not to waver. Yet we know by personal experience and we know from our own track record that without the Lord's moment-by-moment help, without the Lord's constant help, we would sink. That we cannot, on our own, in our own strength, by ourselves, moment-by-moment, persevere and uphold our own faith and make it to glory. This is our concern. That we are called and even commanded by God to keep striving, and yet we know that we are vulnerable. This is a real battle. Persevering day by day, let alone enduring to the end. Right? I mean, sometimes we just totally lose sight of the end. We're just trying to get through today, right? This is the battle. We are called to press on. We are told over and over again to not lose heart and to not grow weary. To set our minds on things that are above. To resolve to keep the faith and to finish the race. But we cannot escape the reality that if our salvation is dependent on our own resolve, this contest is over before we ever get out of the gate. Because we know we will certainly fail. We won't last. We won't hold fast our confession. We won't hold fast our confidence firm until the end. Our faith will be crushed because we are weak. Every true Christian knows that he needs the Lord moment by moment, or else he would sink. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that it's easy to get overwhelmed. Really easy. You don't have to work very hard to get overwhelmed. I mean, we are daily, we, we are derailed by our own selfish desires and our lusts. We don't pray like we should. We don't worship the Lord in a worthy manner. We have a hard time focusing. We grumble and we complain the first time something doesn't go our way. We don't know what we need to know because of our laziness and our failure to study. And we don't even obey what we are privileged to already know. Well, thank the Lord for Romans 8. Notice verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with Same word is in Romans 2 and Romans 5. Patience. Perseverance. Endurance. Think about what Paul is saying. He's saying we have a secure hope. We haven't obtained it yet. It's out there in the future, but in the here and the now, we wait for it with patience or with perseverance. With patience, we press on. We wait eagerly with perseverance. With faith, we take another step every day, and yet we know that without the Lord, we won't make it. So that's the tension that exists in the Christian life. And what Paul does in verses 26 to 30 is to help us to know how to live with that tension, how to comprehend and, and, and to be encouraged by the ministry of the Spirit of God in the midst of that tension. Notice what he says in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, what Paul describes for us in these verses is one more way that the Spirit of God ministers in the lives of God's people. And what Paul unfolds for us here is what we might call the Spirit's protecting ministry. The Spirit's protecting ministry. That moment-by-moment ministry in the believer's life, whereby the Holy Spirit guards and preserves his faith from being extinguished. And keeps him from getting to the place where he is unable to have intimate fellowship with God at all. Especially as it relates to prayer. And the believer's communication with God about his struggles. And the things in life that seem to overwhelm him. Now notice how Paul connects this vital ministry of the Spirit to other beneficial ministries. He says in verse 26... In the same way, or some of your translations may say in likewise or similarly. So Paul points, points out that in the same way that the Spirit blesses you in other ways, ways that we've already mentioned in these previous verses, He, meaning the Holy Spirit, also does something else. He protects you. He protects you. In a moment-by-moment way, He personally helps you in your perseverance and in your prayer life. He intercedes for you in your struggle so that you can persevere through prayer. So this is what Paul does. First, he gives the reasons why we need the Spirit's intercession. Then he goes on to talk about how the Spirit of God protects us, how He protects us from our own limited humanness, And then finally, he goes on to explain the outcome of the Spirit's protecting and preserving ministry, which is found in verses 28 to 30, which we'll have to look at another time. We'll only have time to cover these first two parts this morning. So let's begin by looking at the need for the Spirit's protection. The need for the Spirit's protection. Why is it essential that the Spirit of God protect us? Why is it essential that the Spirit of God protect us? Well, Paul provides two reasons, two descriptions that are somewhat interrelated. The first is the fragile or the frail nature of our perseverance. Notice what he says in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us, how? In our weakness. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that our ability to persevere is fragile. Or we can say this, our perseverance is shaky. Our perseverance is shaky. It's up and down. It's back and forth. It's intermixed with human limitations. Sometimes we are ignorant. Uh, sometimes we have a hard time sustaining momentum in our spiritual lives. Uh, and, and, and in some cases, we feel like we have it, right? We've, all of a sudden, we've got this spiritual momentum going, and the next thing you know, we've lost it. And we're back into a state of some kind of stagnation. The reality is that even after salvation, we are characterized in many ways by spiritual weakness. Now, the weakness that Paul is speaking of here is not sin. Uh, It's not the sin that we commit. It's not the sins of moral corruption. In fact, it's not even referring to suffering. It's not the suffering or the afflictions that we endure. Paul is simply referring to the overall weakness of, of human nature and the limitations of our humanity. Just the limitations of, of, of us being humans. So Paul is not talking about sinful prayer here. here. He's, not, he's not referring to say that kind of prayer that James mentions in James chapter 4 verse 3. Where he says to the believers there that they're not receiving from God what they ask for. Because they ask for what they want with impure motives. Right? They ask wrongly to spend it on their own passion. So they're asking for things selfishly. That's obviously sinful prayer. That's very uh, egotistical, self-centered prayer. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He, he's talking about the Spirit coming alongside of us when, because of our human limitations, we don't know how to express what we need. Or we simply don't know what we need. That will be in keeping with His will. And without the Spirit's help, this would certainly affect our perseverance. Because in order to persevere, we would have to be consistent in praying according to the will of God all of the time. And we would have to pray perfectly about all that we need all of the time. The problem is we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't pull that off. We can't even even know that. Because Paul says we are limited. We are finite. We cannot see all these things in our life the way that God sees them. Our knowledge is limited. And therefore our interpretation of that information is limited. We are bound by time and by space. We are bound by the constraints of of living on this planet. We are part of this world and we don't always see or perceive what is going on In the supernatural world. And and even though the scripture teaches that our inner life. Is being transformed by the spirit. Verse 23 here reminds us that our body is dying. So though we have a mind that can be renovated. Though we have a mind that can be renewed according to the truth. Yet we have our outer man. and And physical parts of us. ...that are vulnerable to corruption. Turn over uh, for just a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about this vulnerability to corruption. And you'll notice some of the same terms here in 2 Corinthians 5... ...as Paul mentions back in Romans uh, chapter 8. He says in verse 1 here, 2 Corinthians 5... ...for we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home... ...and he's talking about his body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked or vulnerable or incomplete. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. So what Paul does here is he reminds us that if we have a body that dies, or if we have a body that is torn down, we will be given a body that is fashioned for eternity, And we long as believers to reach that end. But now, he says, the afflictions and the burdens of life affect us in profound ways. So much so that sometimes we don't even know what to pray for. So we are called to press on. We are called to persevere. We are called to hold fast and to hold on. And yet we know that, that, that part of our daily strength is very shaky and feeble. It's fragile. If we are ever going to make it, God is going to have to protect us. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. He says "Therefore, we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If that is true, if we are truly God's workmanship, then that means that we need him to work on us, right? We need God to work on us, to fortify our faith, to strengthen us against our own limitations and our weaknesses. So the spirit must protect us because our perseverance is shaky. And the Spirit must protect us because so often our prayers are short-sighted. Our prayers are short-sighted. Notice what he says, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Think about the issue of prayer. I mean, at one level, at a very basic level, prayer in and of itself, almost by definition, is an admission or a confession of weakness, Right? It's an admission that we are weak. We pray, hopefully, because we realize that we cannot meet a need ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. And so just going to God in prayer is an admission that we understand that reality. But prayer really does reveal the depth of our weakness. Because not only are we unable to bring about what we ask for we're not even capable of always asking for the right things. Now, Paul's not talking about the physical dynamics of prayer here. He's not talking about things like, you know, uh, posture in prayer. Do we lay prostrate? Do we lay down? Do 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 we get on our knees? Do we bow? Do we lift up our hands? Do we close our eyes or keep them open? He's not talking about any of those things. He's also not talking about the methodology of prayer. Because after all, prayer is relatively simple. In in fact, sometimes we are guilty of complicating prayer when it's a relatively simple thing. Most of us are familiar with the basic components of prayer, things like praise and adoration, confession, thanksgiving, petition, supplication, consecration, those types of things. But the question here is, what exactly do we pray for what exactly do we pray for and in the context of suffering because that's the context of Romans 8 it's in it's it's this it's what we refer to sometimes the gospel gap right we've been saved by grace we we stand justified before god and we're awaiting future glory but yet we're in this day-to-day struggle right we're striving we're persevering We're walking by faith. It's in this this context of suffering. We ask the question, what exactly do we pray for? And honestly, in the context of suffering, the answer to that question is not always very obvious to us. We may think that we know. I mean, when we're suffering, we may think that we know what we should pray for. But Paul's just being very blunt with us and telling us, you don't always know what you should pray for. We don't always know what to pray for. We don't always have the right content. Because we don't always have the necessary information to make it make sense before God according to his will. When we bring a struggle before God, it is so limited. Now... Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. Now, I'm encouraged by this. And one of, the reasons, one of the reasons why I'm encouraged by this is because you'll notice that Paul puts himself in our boat. Uh, notice that Paul says we. Okay? So, so Paul includes himself in this statement that we don't always know what to pray for. Paul's saying this. Now, we could go to passages like Ephesians 1.16 where Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you mentioning you in my prayers. I mean, this was a man of unceasing prayer. We know that from the biblical record that Paul was constantly praying for others. He probably carried around parchments, Uh, he he probably made notes of people and circumstances and, and requests and situations. And he most likely had prayer lists. And there was most likely a formality to his prayers. In other words, he was probably very systematic in praying about certain things. But yet he says here, I'm still included in this group. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. We are so limited, and we're limited in a, in a variety of ways. We're limited because our perspective is limited, right? I mean, everything that we see, everything that we hear, everything that we experience, uh, everything that we feel and witness in our lives are are filtered through a human grid and, and not through God's grid. Sometimes our assessment is small and imperfect. We don't always have God's big picture in mind when we pray. Occasionally, we just get distracted, right? I mean, we're limited. I mean, think about how easily we get distracted. Someone comes up to you, shares a significant need in their life, or or maybe you think about a situation in your own life that is a burden to you. And you're gripped by the significance of that event, either in this other person's life or in your life. And so you go to pray, and 30 seconds into your prayer, you're thinking about getting your taxes done. Right? Or, Or you're thinking about the start time of one of your kids' activities later in the day. I mean, only seconds into your prayer, you're already distracted thinking about other things. That's the kind of limitation we're talking about. It's it's really mind-boggling how our minds wander. And the question that, that surfaces is, how are you going to offer up prayers that call for perseverance when you are that easily distracted about the whole task? Sometimes our minds are consumed with thoughts of the temporal rather than the eternal. We get focused on the daily advances and the daily advantages that we can make in the here and the now. And we fail to tune into and to pay attention to the spiritual things that God is accomplishing. Not that praying for daily material needs is a bad thing. I mean, Jesus, right in his model prayer, Matthew 6, 11, says we are to pray in this way. Give us this day our... Daily bread, right? That's a material need. But if that is all that you pray about, the daily practical things, the physical things, the material things, then something is definitely wrong. Occasionally, our own burdens engulf our thoughts and influence the content of our prayers. When this happens, our prayers become superficial and focused on our desire to obtain relief. We don't always pray for God to do His perfect work and His will and mean it. We say it, right? Lord, have your way. Lord, accomplish your will. But we don't really mean it sometimes in our hearts. We might say that, but in our hearts we are so overwhelmed with the weight of our burdens that what we really want is for God to take it all away. That's what we really want. Have thine own way, Lord, but take it away. It's like, it's like we were saying, at one side of our mouth, we're saying, Lord, have your way, accomplish your will, but in our, in our hearts, we really just want God to take the burdens away. We become focused on personal comforts and relief rather than on personal sanctification and maturity. How many times have we prayed to God that he would change the circumstances? Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Paul essentially did this, right? I mean, he did this himself during a time in his life when he was having to bear up under a major burden, a severe trial, one that was gutting him, one, one that he described as, as like a stake in his own heart, a shaft through his own soul. And he took this need, this matter before God, at least, as we, we know, of at least three formal occasions. And Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. He says, so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated or exalted. Three times he says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, Paul isn't that much different from you and me. He wants to be useful in ministry. We want to be useful in ministry. Uh, Paul wants to be effective. He wants to take care of his own life. We we want to do that too. He doesn't want to be excessively weighed down. And, And so he takes this request to the Lord. And he says basically, Lord, take this away. I mean, that's his request, right? Take this burden away. Lord, change the course of my circumstances. Does that sound familiar? But here's what the text tells us. What the text tells us is that he did not know the full will of God. In fact, he indicates this in these verses that he did not know two things in this particular situation. Number one, Paul did not know how dangerous it was for him in his pride because of all his gifting, how vulnerable he was to pride in his own heart. And that is why God sent the trial to keep him from, as it says in the text, elating or exalting himself. Secondly, Paul admits that he did not have full comprehension of the grace that he needed and that God was producing in his life through the trial. So we we do this all the time. We're in a situation, this is the way that we see it, we offer up sincere, genuine prayers to God uh, to do for God to do such and such, because from our vantage point, this is what would bring the best result, but we 're limited. that is who we are. Yes, every true Christian prays Pray, prayer is, is natural prayer is is necessary, it is a normal part of the Christian life, but prayer is not easy, apart from making time for it we often find that prayer itself is a struggle. We wonder, am I praying with an open mind or have I already drawn my conclusions? Am I weighing the options accurately? Am I forgetting an important piece of the equation? What exactly should I pray for? Do I pray for deliverance from the sufferings or for the strength to endure the sufferings? Our prayers are so short-sighted. Our horizon is always so limited. And if that is the case, how are we to ever connect with God in our prayers? Our requests to God are so weak, so imperfect, so unbalanced. If our prayers were the key to keeping us connected to God, especially in times of struggle, we're in big time trouble. Except that we have a promise. And we'll go here to the promise of the Spirit's protection. Paul mentions the promise of the Spirit's protection. Paul doesn't point out our shaky perseverance or our short sighted prayers. He goes on to talk about the assurance that we have as children of God that the Holy Spirit is protecting us and strengthening our perseverance. What else does he say here in verse 26? He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us. He helps us in our weakness. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit Himself, it's emphatic. The Spirit Himself is doing a work to help you in your weakness. He helps you. Now, this word for help conveys the idea of someone helping someone else to carry a load or to give them a hand. The only other place in the New Testament that we find this term is in Luke chapter 10, where we find Jesus entering the home of the two sisters, Martha and Mary. You remember the story, Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach while Martha's busy and distracted with serving, and Martha gets irritated. She gets irritated that she's the one that's running around doing all this work while Mary's just sitting there at Jesus' feet. And so, getting irritated, she goes, she approaches Jesus, and she tells Jesus... To tell Mary to come and to help her. And there's the term. Now the point is this. The idea of helping in both of these passages does not imply that the the one helping is supposed to step in and do all of the work. That is not what Mary was wanting from her sister. She wasn't want or that's not what Martha was wanting from from her sister. She wasn't wanting her sister to come and to take over and do all of it. She was wanting her sister to come and to help with the work. And that's not what we should expect from the Holy Spirit. In other words, prayer is a partnership. Just because prayer is a struggle, Just because it's a struggle for us doesn't mean that we should stop praying and expect the Holy Spirit to take over. God expects us to pray. But in our striving and in our weakness and in our praying, He doesn't leave us to ourselves. And this this is so encouraging. I mean, consider what Paul is saying here. The Holy Spirit is your personal advocate working within you, helping you with your particular burdens and with your particular specific weaknesses. And this isn't just a general promise that covers all of believers. It is specific to you. And so it's as if he's saying, the Holy Spirit, he he knows your burdens, your trials, your weaknesses. He understands and knows you specifically. He is helping you on the inside as you approach the throne of grace. He is your personal attendant. I mean, what a blessing that that whatever the struggle, whatever struggle you bring, whatever lack of information you bring to the table, whatever ignorance, whatever limitations, the spirit is working in you and on your behalf. And notice what he's doing to help. He is interceding for you. He is making petitions for you. He is... Pleading on your behalf. He lifts up a burden to help you carry it. He steps in to rescue you because he knows that you're in need. He lifts up and encourages your perseverance. By pleading before God with you and for you. I mean would that help you to take another step of faith? You better believe it would. And when this happens. Paul says it comes to us in some mysterious way he intercedes for us he says here in this verse with groanings too deep for words or with groanings that cannot be uttered or literally with groanings that are inexpressible now the, the paul go talk describes here the the spirit's intercessory ministry in two ways number one he says that the holy spirit intercedes with divine expressions that are beyond human words Now, just to be clear, we're not talking about some sort of angelic language. We're not referring to the New Testament gift of tongues or languages. There there was a New Testament gift of languages in the early church that was given by the Holy Spirit as a testimony to the message of Christ as the Messiah. But that is not what Paul is alluding to here. Mainly, we know that because this promise in verse, verse 26 is given to every believer. And the gift of languages was clearly not given to every believer according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. On another note, these are the inexpressible groanings of the Spirit Himself before God on our behalf. These are not our groanings. And the reason why they are inexpressible is because there aren't human words that could capture all that God wants to say or does say in that inter-Trinitarian union. So with divine expressions beyond human words, the Spirit... Paul says, knows what burdens you. And he unites with your prayers that are short-sighted and weak. And as your personal advocate, and he goes before the throne of grace and expresses to God those burdens and the weight that you feel in a way that is incomprehensible to us, but is fully known between the members of the Trinity down to the ultimate details. So remember, you are limited, but the Spirit is not limited. He not only knows you, He fully knows the will of God. And He can translate your burdens in an absolutely flawless way with inexpressible expressions. Again, we're not talking about praying with sinful motives. If that were the case, the Spirit would not be lifting you up. He would be convicting you. And the Father would be chastening you. But in this case that Paul's describing in Romans 8, he's talking about a time when whatever you are burdened with or whatever you are overwhelmed with, that's keeping you from taking the next step of faith that day or whatever is keeping you from gaining momentum in your perseverance. You go to God anyway expressing that you don't know what to pray for, that you're limited in your perspective, that you are handicapped by your humanity and you are weak and you trust that the Spirit of God is going to translate that because He promises to help, to rescue you, and to lift you up by interceding with expressions that are beyond human words. Now, He not only goes before the Father with expressions that are beyond human words, but He intercedes with divine wisdom that is beyond human understanding. Verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, he who searches the hearts, well, that, of course, is God, right? We know that from a number of passages, 1 Samuel sixteen seven: Man looks on the outer appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He knows the heart. He searches the heart. God the Father searches the heart. But whose hearts? Well, we know that God searches every person's heart. But in this context specifically... Paul is saying that God searches the hearts of all of His children. So God knows if you're a believer, God knows your heart, and God the Father also knows what the mind of the Spirit is naturally, because they are unified. They are they are as members of the Trinity. They are one, so they know the purposes that they want to accomplish. They know the perfections that they are trying to bring about in your life. They know how to protect you perfectly. They know what circumstances would crush your faith and put an end to your perseverance. You don't know those things, but they do. It's like our copy machine down in the the office. The thing on a pretty regular basis kind of messes up, gets a jam. It gives us a little secret code, says this code. We don't know what's going on. I mean, it, it breaks down. We don't know what the names of the parts are. Uh, we don't know how it all works. All I know is that when you push that start button, it doesn't work right, or maybe it doesn't work at all. It just flashes at you. So, what do we do? I, I mean, we're, we're so limited, right? Well, I, I can tell you what I do. I call CopierNet. Right, Randy? I mean, we call Ted. Ted at CopierNet, the, sales, the, the, the salesman, the, the owner of the company, company there, Ted's great. He brings cookies when he comes. To the office We love Ted. We, that's the only advantage sometimes of the coffee machine breaking down, is that sometimes we get to see TED, which means we get some of these Otis cookies. But here's what Ted does. We call TED because we don't know what to do. We call Ted. Ted sends a technician to the church. The technician comes, he inspects the machine, he calls in the part number, because why? Because he knows how to get it up and running again. So we turn to CopierNet and say, listen, we need help. We're limited in our information. We don't know how to make this thing work. They send the help. So when you put it all together, what Paul is saying in these verses is this. God knows your heart, and he is in harmony with the Spirit. You go before God with your burdens. You don't know what the will of God is because you are weak, and sometimes you don't even know what to pray But the Spirit helps you. He intercedes for you with expressions too deep for words and with divine wisdom. And he translates your struggle to God so that it comes out at the throne of grace as something that God loves and that God wants for your life, enabling you to take another step of faith and strengthening you in your perseverance. This is his promise to you as a child of God. And you need it. Because even though Jesus Christ is your advocate and your covering for sin, he's your righteousness, you must still endure to the end. And the only way you're going to make it with all of your weakness and your shaky perseverance is for the Holy Spirit to take your short-sighted, incomplete, uninformed prayers and to act as a bridge to the Father so that your prayer reaches him. It makes perfect sense... It is in line with His will, and you get strengthened. Your intercession is imperfect, but the Spirit's intercession for your struggle is always on target. So the Trinity works to bring you to another step of faith, and He continues to do this in the life of every true believer until they reach glory. You know, communication is one of the great blessings of the human condition, and it really sets us miles apart from a lot of the other things that the Lord created. But communication is also one of the great problems of the human condition, right, of human nature. Words are difficult. We misinterpret and misunderstand one another all the time. We don't speak clearly. We don't speak sometimes even intelligently. We don't interpret accurately. But consider this, the Holy Spirit and the Father never misinterpret one another. They always work in perfect harmony. They are always on the same page, the will and the purpose and the plan of God. And this plan involves your good. Now, what is the divine purpose behind the Spirit's everyday moment-by-moment intercession? What is the ultimate outcome? Verse 28. One of the most beloved verses in the Bible, and yet one that is most likely not to be believed. And we know that that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How is it possible that all things work together for good? Because the Spirit has an everyday, moment-by-moment, intercessory work. This is all a part of the Holy Spirit's protecting and preserving ministry in your life. You may feel overwhelmed. You may feel weak. But you will never be lost. Because you have a father who loves you and has demonstrated his grace. You have his son who has paid the penalty for your sin. And you have his spirit within you who is strengthening and protecting your faith day by day. So in the struggle, don't run from prayer, run to prayer. Let's stand. Father, once again, we are grateful for this opportunity to worship together as a body and Lord, thankful for your rock solid truth, Lord, that guides us, that lights our path Father, even in this passage, we are so thankful for the reminder, Lord, that we are limited. We are mere men. Lord, our horizon is limited. Our our understanding is limited. Our perseverance is flimsy at times and shaky and unstable. Lord, our prayers are often short-sighted. And uninformed, and Lord, we are just thankful that not only you sober us with these reminders, but you also, Lord, this morning have reminded us of that great promise that your Holy Spirit serves as an advocate. He intercedes for us, Lord, with wisdom, with a full understanding of your will, and a great care for each one of us, Lord. We are so thankful for his intercessory work. Lord, for the many ways that he strengthens day by day, moment by moment, our perseverance so that we can continue to walk by faith until we see Christ face to face. And, Lord, we're just mindful again this morning that there are those that are here in our service that may not know you. Lord, they do not have an advocate. Jesus is not interceding for them. The Holy Spirit is not interceding and helping them because they, in their rebellion continue to shake their fist at you, continue to live for themselves, for their own advantage and not for Christ. And Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would break their hearts, that Lord, they would be humbled before you, and that Lord, they would give up their life of sin, and that they would run to the only sure refuge, Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Amen.